Hey, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate you joining us today as we are continuing on our journey through the power of small. And whether you're connecting with us in person at one of our campuses or online, either way, I just want you to know I am really glad that you're here. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but as human beings, we have a natural tendency to be biased towards the big. What I mean by that is we, we think the bigger something is, the, the better it must be. And that's especially true as Americans where we're all about the big. We equate big with success and importance. And even in our lives, we, we think about our lives in terms of the big moments, the, the big events that we think those are the things that are truly important. It's the big stuff that really impacts our life. But here's what I want you to understand. While we may mark our lives by the big things, the true measure of our lives is found in the little things, right? Small steps taken consistently over long periods of time have a way of adding up to where we ultimately end up in our lives. I'll give you an example of our bias towards the big. Every week, millions of Americans play the lottery. And some play it multiple times every week, spending five, 10, 15, 20, 30, some even $50 a week on a shot to win that big jackpot, despite the overwhelming mathematical odds against you ever winning anything. We keep trying for that big payday. We want that big life-changing payday. But here's the reality. You could take what you spend on the lottery every week, and if you invested it in an interest-bearing account, over like 20 or 30 years, you would have a guaranteed million dollars. We seem to also apply that to our faith life, right? We think we're going to grow in our faith if there's a, a big breakthrough God moment, a big God-sized miracle that's going to really grow our faith, when in truth, a deep, strong, vibrant faith is not based on some big thing God does, but our commitment to take small steps towards Him on a daily basis. Not my words. Jesus' words. In fact, notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, there on the top of your outline. Jesus says, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in the large ones. But if you're dishonest, if you're not faithful in the little things, you won't be honest, you won't be faithful with greater responsibility. What's he saying? He's saying, the, the more faithful I am to taking a little time every week to connect with other believers for corporate worship or to connect an authentic community in a small group, the, the more faithful I am to daily spend just a little bit of time alone with God, listening for his voice and his word, pouring out my heart to him in prayer. And the, the more faithful I am in looking for those little opportunities to share the hope that I have with others who could use it, the more I get those little things right, the more of God's miracles I'm going to experience in my life. 
So what I want to do today is look at a great example of how God can turn our little into a lot. We're going to see how Jesus worked through a small boy and a small lunch and some small-minded followers to pull off one of his biggest miracles. This particular miracle is often titled as the feeding of the 5,000, which is actually not completely accurate because in that culture, whenever they counted the number of people at something, they only counted the men. And so the Bible tells us there were 5,000 men. So we can assume that if you've got 5,000 men, you've probably got a couple of thousand women. You also have children, boys and girls. So most people believe, most scholars believe that they actually was the feeding of about 15,000. And interestingly, this is one of Jesus' most well-known miracles. In fact, this is the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four of the gospels. You can find this miracle in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can't find every other miracle in all four. Now, you remember, because all four of the gospel writers were writing the same events, they were telling the same historical narrative, Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, but because they were writing to different audiences, and because they were focusing on different aspects of Jesus' character and life, They didn't all just tell the same story, word by word, step by step. They all told different stories, and yet all of them took the time to include this particular miracle in their gospel account. Why? Well, I don't know for sure, but I believe probably the reason is because in this miracle, we can see the essential elements that are needed to allow God to turn our little into a lot. So let me start with a question for you today. What do you need more of in your life right now? What do you need more of? Some of us will say, well, I need more patience with my family, right? I need more time. I'm running out of time. I need more strength. I need more energy. I I need more money. Listen, whatever you need more of, we're going to discover some practical ways for God to turn what little you have into more than what you need. Now, this story is found in all of the Gospels, but we're going to look specifically at Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 6, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn or click there. That's where we're going to be drilling down. If you don't have a Bible, you don't have a Bible app, that's okay. You can follow along on your outline. A little bit of a backstory. This miracle took place after Jesus had sent out his disciples in groups of two. He sent them out two by two to travel to villages and towns and minister to and care for and to heal hurting people. And while they're out doing that, word comes back that John the Baptist has been arrested and beheaded. King Herod had John's head cut off. Now realize that for the disciples, John the Baptist was not just Jesus' cousin. He was a close friend of all of them. It's somebody they cared deeply about. In fact, several of Jesus' followers have been followers of John the Baptist before they started following Jesus. So this was an emotional event for them. And so when they gather back 
with Jesus. Jesus can sense they are physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. They are exhausted from ministry. They're exhausted from their grief. And when they come back together, there's still a ton of people with needs around them and they're trying to meet those needs so much so that they don't even take time to get something to eat. And Jesus, sensing their need, calls them away for a little sabbatical. Guys, I wanna take you away. Let's get a little break. Let's get a little R&R. So they get on a boat and they're gonna cross the lake because on the other side of the lake is this kind of wilderness area. It's like a national park, right? There are no towns, there are no stores. It's just the middle of nowhere, a great place to kind of get away from the needy crowds. The problem is the people saw them leave in a boat and they kind of knew there's only one place they could be going. And so the people ran around on the shore and when they get to this supposed, you know, wilderness area for a little R&R, there's this huge crowd of people waiting on them. And because Jesus is Jesus, because he was full of compassion, he did what Jesus always does. He was there for that crowd of people. He spent all day teaching and ministering to them. And as it started to get late in the afternoon, the disciples realized, "Uh uh-oh, we got a problem. We got all these people out here. We've got no food. It's getting late in the day. There's no Taco Bell. There's no Mickey D's. There's no place they can go get some food. So they tell Jesus, look, we need to send these people away so they can get to a market, get home or something. Otherwise, we've got nothing for them. And Jesus' response to that problem as we unpack it shows us very, four very practical steps that every one of us can take to allow Jesus to turn our little into a lot. So let's jump in. Number one, the first thing we have to do is just recognize the problem. You got to recognize the problem. Every miracle begins with a problem. And I'm not just talking about the little old problems of every day. I'm talking about the problems that are too big for you to fix. Now look, if you don't have a problem or you can take care of the problems that you have, you don't need a miracle. But But if you've got a problem, and a problem that's way bigger than you can manage, here's some good news. You've taken the first step towards a miracle. You are a candidate for a miracle from God. Now, the disciples' problem was obvious. Notice verse 34 and 35. They had a large crowd. It was late in the day, and they're in a remote place. What I find interesting about that is that those same three ingredients that created this problem for the disciples are the ingredients that create most of the problems in our lives. Too big a need, not enough time, and too little resources. What problem do you have like that right now? What problem are you dealing with that's just too big for you? What problem are you dealing with that you don't have enough time to fix it, that that you have too little resources to deal with it? Maybe it's a problem you got at work. Maybe a problem with your family. Maybe it's a problem with your health. Maybe it's a problem with your finances. Whatever it is, if you can recognize the problem and admit you need help, you've taken the first step towards a miracle. Because if you think you can solve it without God, that's exactly how you'll do it, without 
God. It starts by just recognizing the problem. But then secondly, beyond that, you also have to take responsibility for the problem. You gotta take responsibility. Once you've identified it and admitted that it really is a problem that's too big for you, you have to take ownership of it. Let me ask you a question. Who recognized the problem first, Jesus or the disciples? Who realized that they had too many people, not enough restaurants, and nobody was going to get something to eat? Who recognized it first, Jesus or the disciples? Now, you want to say the disciples because they're the first ones to mention it. Like, Jesus, we've got a problem. But we read in John's gospel that Jesus realized the problem the minute he saw the crowd. He knew there was gonna be a problem feeding them. In fact, he not only knew there was a problem, he already knew how he was gonna solve it. Look at John 6, 6. It says he, talking about Jesus, he already knew what he was going to do. When did the disciples realize there's a problem? Notice verse 35. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him. My point is, it had been a problem from the moment their boat touched the shore. But it was not until the disciples got concerned about it that Jesus moved in that problem. My point is this. You're not waiting on Jesus to recognize your problems. He's waiting on you to take responsibility for those problems. That's why in verse 37, look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, you feed them. What? That's crazy, right? They're in the middle of nowhere. It's 15,000 people. That is an impossible ask. No way they're gonna be able to feed all these people. In fact, if you read the rest of verse 37, the disciples immediately make a list, legitimate list of all the reasons why they couldn't feed the people, starting with what it's gonna cost. They did a little quick calculation, number of people, what bread costs, what it was going to take to feed them, and they realized it's going to take like 200 denarii, eight months wages, right? There's no way. If they had that much, they were going to bankrupt the ministry just for this one meal. Why would Jesus ask them to feed the people when it's obvious they cannot do it? Why would Jesus make that ask because he wanted to stretch their faith. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Think about this. The solution to the problem is standing right there in front of them. Jesus, who had turned, already turned stones into bread and told them about it, is standing right there and they're looking for Taco Bell. They're trying to figure out how to get a door dash all the way out there. And the solution is right there with them. Here's what I'm saying. Faith is not you dumping your problems on Jesus in prayer and then kicking back in your recliner with your Cheetos and go, have at it, Jesus, fix my problem. No, faith is trusting God to do in and through you what you can't do on your own. But you gotta be a part of it. And it starts with taking responsibility for it. It's interesting, we see in the disciples' response to this problem the same way we respond to many of the problems 
in our lives. Three, three things they do that every one of us is guilty of doing. One response to problems is to procrastinate. Procrastination, right? Just put it off. We, we saw in verse 35, they waited till it was late in the day. They procrastinated. And the thing about procrastination, it never makes the problem better. It always makes it worse. What's that old saying, that old poem? Procrastination is my game, right? It, it only brings me sorrow. I know that I should change my ways. Perhaps I will tomorrow, right? We just kick the can down the road. It doesn't solve it. The second way we often respond to problems is we pass the buck. We pass the buck. That's why in verse 36, the disciples say to Jesus, we got to send them away. Just cut them loose out of sight, out of mind. And besides, it's not our problem. We didn't tell these people to come out in the middle of nowhere and not bring anything to eat, right? We're not responsible for feeding them. They can take care of themselves. It's not our problem. Pass the buck. We often do this in our own lives. We'll see a problem, an issue in our community. And we'll say, you know, the church ought to do something about all this homelessness. The, the church ought to do something about all these people who are struggling with addiction. The church ought to do this. The church ought to fix that. And we forget we are the church. You are the church. When God opens your eyes to a problem or issue of hurting people around you and he breaks your heart towards that, he's not doing that so you can report back to the church what the church needs to do. He's calling you to do what you can do, even if it's just a little, to do what you can. We procrastinate, we pass the buck, and then our favorite thing to do with problems Worry, worry. We are champion worriers, right? And the disciples were good at this. After they did the little calculation to see what it was gonna cost, their, their anxiety goes into overdrive. Like, where are we gonna get food, right? And if we get it, how are we gonna keep it hot till we get it back here? And who's gonna clean up the mess after we have this big picnic, right? Who's gonna underwrite the liability insurance to do feed all these people, right? I mean, the health certificates alone will take weeks to get it, and they worry, and they worry, and they worry. But can I tell you something? Worry never solved a single problem. You know why? God doesn't respond to our worry. He responds to our faith, and that's why the third thing we have to do is just do what you can with what you have. Do what you can with what you have. I think God often waits to see what we're going to do with what we have before he steps in. So I love this. Verse 38, Jesus says, how much bread do you have? He asked, go and find out. Now think about this. As I said earlier, Jesus could have turned the stones on the ground into bread, right? He could have just done it just like that, problem solved. He didn't even have to do it. He could have just called manna to fall down from heaven and feed everybody, but he doesn't. He starts with asking, what do you have? He says, what do you got? And actually, they don't have anything. John's gospel tells us that the hero of this story is a little boy. 
And out of all that 15 plus thousand people, he's the only one who thought ahead of time, or at least his mama did, and brought a lunch. And John's gospel tells us his lunch is more like a snack. It's five loaves of bread and two fish. But you got to understand what that was like. The little barley loaves that it says this little boy had, these aren't big French bread baguettes. They're, they're small. They're the smallest, cheapest loaf of bread. They're tiny. It's like having five hush puppies. That's what he had, five little hush puppies. And the two fish he had were not talking, you know, a big slab of grouper or tuna. The fish that they ate in that area was small. It's like herring or sardine. So basically, this kid only had five hush puppies and two sardines. But listen, he may not have had much, but he gave Jesus everything he had. Three things the little boy does. This is so important. Don't miss this. One, the little boy gave what he had. He gave what he had. He didn't give what he didn't have. He couldn't, but he gave what he had. I know it wasn't much, 15,000 people, but he gave it. You remember last week, we, we talked about this with Gideon, right? That God does some of the biggest, most extraordinary things he does through some of the smallest, most ordinary people who are willing to give what they have. And not only did he give what he had, the second thing he did is he gave all he had. He gave all he had. You notice the little boy didn't tithe his lunch. Like, here's 10% of my bread and, and here's 10% of my fish. No, he didn't hold anything back. He gave it all. What are you holding back from God? God, you can have everything but this relationship. God, God, you can have everything, but not my money. God, I give everything to you, but not my time, not my energy, not my passion. He gave what he had. He gave all he had, and he gave it immediately. He gave it immediately. He didn't hesitate and say, well, let me pray about that, Jesus. See if the Holy Spirit wants me to really, you know, give my lunch. No, he just, he just did it. He just gave it all immediately. Why don't we give like that? Why don't we give what we have that way? Why don't we give our time? Why don't we give our talents? Why don't we give our resources like that? Two reasons, I think. One, we're afraid we might end up hungry. If we give what we have, what's going to be left for us? If, if I give my time, all my time to Jesus, what's going to be left for me? If I give all my resources, how are we going to survive? We don't really believe God's promise that he will meet all our needs. We don't give like that because we're afraid we might end up hungry. But I don't think that's the case for most of you here. You have a long history as a church of being incredibly generous. You know why I think a lot of us don't give like that little boy? It's because we don't think the little we have can make any big difference. You see these huge problems in our community and they're overwhelming and you think, well, well I can't make any difference. I mean, what, is that, what am I gonna be able to? to do. I mean, put yourself in the little boy's shoes. 
I give Jesus my lunch. What difference is that going to make? Still going to be a lot of hungry people. There's no way it's going to make that big a difference. But listen, church, listen. If you haven't learned anything in these last couple of weeks, please don't miss this. There is nothing small when it's given to a big God in faith. There's nothing small about what you have, who you are, how God wants to use you, or the difference you can make. There is nothing small when it's done in faith for a huge God. And when you'll do that, when you'll recognize the problem and and take responsibility, stop passing the buck, stop kicking the can, when, when you do what you can, with what you have, no matter how small it is, then the fourth thing all you gotta do is sit back and expect a miracle. Expect God to act. And expect him to act in a bigger way than you could have ever imagined. Jesus takes those little hush puppies and he prays over them and blesses them and he starts to break them and he puts them in baskets and the disciples start passing it around. Then he takes those fish and he he starts to break it and he puts it in the basket and they pass. I don't know the mechanism of the miracle. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if while he was breaking the bread, the bread in his hand just kept going and it never ran out. I don't know if that happened with the fish. I don't know if maybe when he put it in the baskets, it magically multiplied. I don't know the mechanism of the miracle. But what I do know is that what Jesus did was more than anybody was expecting. Notice verses 42 and 43. It said they all, all 15,000 ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. I've always wondered about this. Why did Jesus make more than they needed, right? It's a miracle just for everybody to eat to their full. Why so much over the top? Why so much more than was needed? I think the answer to that question is found in Ephesians 3.20. Paul writes, now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Two things I want you to notice in that promise there. One, it is all about God's glory. God's power, God's miracles, they're not about us. They're not about making our church famous. They're not even about meeting the needs of hurting people. Yes, the miracle fed those people a meal, but the miracle wasn't ultimately about feeding people. It was ultimately about God's glory. Second thing I want you to notice in that verse is that God chooses to do it in and through us. Paul says, God's power at work within us us. He didn't need the disciples to pass out that food, right? He didn't even need that little boy to provide the lunch, but he used them. He worked in and through them. Why? I have no idea, but every day I wake up and say, thank you, Jesus, that you want to do something purposeful in my life. Thank you, Jesus, that you allow me to be a part of what you're doing in your kingdom and bringing hope 
and rescue to hurting, broken people like me. I think if I had to sum up this miracle, in fact, if I had to sum up this whole message in a sentence, it would simply be this. What we want God to do for us, he often waits to do through us. So what are you waiting on God to do? You're waiting on God to bring a breakthrough with that family member? You're waiting on a miracle for that prodigal? You're waiting on a miracle for your health? You're waiting on a financial miracle? You're waiting on a miraculous breakthrough in your job? Whatever you're waiting on God to do, I would ask you this. What small step of faith are you willing to take to leverage the power of small in your life? Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, I thank you so much that this incredible miracle is not just a story about bread and a little boy's lunch, but this is a picture of who you are and what you desire to do in and through our lives. I thank you that even when we look at problems that completely overwhelm us and paralyze us, in those moments, that's when you wanna move bigger than ever in our lives. But Father, I know for some reason, you wanna do it in and through us. You want us to take that first step, to step out in faith, and in doing so, watch you show up and blow us away with your grace, with your power, with your provision. And so God, I pray for every one of us here today, those online, those in person, those who will see this weeks from now, whoever is hearing your words today, Lord, I pray in the midst of those problems that they would have the courage to take just a small step of faith and watch you turn that little into a lot. Oh, we love you, Jesus. Move among your people this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.